Welcome to episode two of An Unscripted Woman, a podcast that's all about women living luminous lives. I'm Lael Cooper Jepson, and I'm glad you're here. Since releasing my book at the end of 2015, many of you have expressed a desire to hear me read an audio version of my book, Unscripted, A Woman's Living Prayer. This podcast is my creative response to that desire. Each week, beginning in September 2016, I'll be reading a chapter from my book aloud on this podcast, and then we'll be riffing a bit on what I'm aware of and what I've learned since writing it. To make it easier to follow along, you'll find that each episode of this podcast corresponds to the title of each chapter from my book. To whet your appetite of what this podcast will be like, I'll be releasing the first six episodes this summer. The rest will be coming starting in September. Beyond that intention, I'm not entirely sure where this podcast will go, but I'm willing to find out if you are. I hope you'll join me, and here's how. Follow this podcast on SoundCloud or subscribe to it via iTunes so each new episode will magically appear in your podcast feed. If you follow my blog or my She Changes Facebook page, you'll see each episode posted out there as well. As always, you can find out more about me and my business at SheChanges.com. So here we go. Chapter 2, Unscripted. When I was in grad school, we were asked to share with a circle of 30 students in our cohort what animal best represented each of us as a leader. Not surprisingly, as we went around the circle of bright and ambitious working professional students, there were many fierce and classically top-of-the-food-chain animals offered up. Hawk, eagle, falcon, wolf, bear, lion. I started to sweat a little because I knew what my answer would be. Rabbit, I said. I can still hear the laughter and feel the condescending smirks that came my way in that moment, now 12 years in my past. If I'm not quick enough to catch it, I can still go to shame, and vulnerability inevitably sneaks in behind it, almost under the radar. Once the snickers subsided, someone was bold enough to comment, Oh, you're roadkill. I gasped at the, the violence suggested in that comment and how it was a metaphor for my experience in this not-so-safe group, as well as being a woman working in the corporate world. Small, cute, ultimately dispensable, a dime a dozen, and easily run over. I knew I had just done something either incredibly stupid or thoroughly brave in outing myself as a rabbit. A case could be made for both, but in that moment, as benign as it seemingly was, I sensed I was at an important crossroads, one that would define and irrevocably alter my course. Tell the truth and honor who you are, or play the game and stay safe. I opted for truth and honor. I'd like to say that what flowed from that moment was a rich dialogue punctuated by curiosity. It wasn't. No questions were asked about the virtues of the rabbit, nimble, perceptive, intuitive, creative, fast, with regard to leadership or its symbolism, feminine power, lunar energy, fertility, shape-shifting gender. I wish I'd said something as I witnessed the overdeveloped masculine energy in this group of primarily women literally run over any feminine energy contained within us. It was dismissed, discounted, and discredited as roadkill, but I didn't speak up. I shut the fuck up. 
and I silently made a note to buy a copy of the book Watership Down on my way home that night for some much-needed validation. And there it was. I found myself shying away from yet another opportunity to give voice and value to a feminine approach to leadership. I conceded to the violence implied in the roadkill comment and silently wished I had aligned with a falcon with its sharp talons and beak that could impale a rodent. I might as well have been the driver that made roadkill of my own rabbit in that I allowed it to die a silent and shameful death while on my watch. It wouldn't have been the first time. Rabbits tended to die around me. I grew up in the country, and it was pretty common to have our old flatulent beagle Polly bring a near-dead rabbit back to our porch as twilight approached. So common, in fact, that my sister and I had a standard protocol for this event, lining a shoebox with a towel, putting the bunny with a punctured head in it to rest, feeding it throughout the night with a dropper, and then inevitably burying it in the morning, giving it the next available number in a long line of thumpers who came before it. I thought nothing of it at the time, how we brought quiet grace and loving reverence to the never-ending parade of half-dead rabbits in our live, lives. And then there was the time I tried to repeatedly run over a rabbit I had accidentally swiped while driving on a backcountry road. Far from a sadistic moon move, mine was an act of compassion, or at least an attempt at that. The rabbit I had maimed with my car might beg to differ, as I repeatedly tried to run it over to put it out of its misery, missing again and again with the skinny tires of my tercel, sobbing, I'm so sorry, before backing up and trying one more time. It was awful, and I believe to this day that poor rabbit actually died of a heart attack from terror rather than its initial injury from my car. But it wasn't until I started consulting with an executive director at a women's organization here in Maine that I reclaimed my rabbit because she was a chicken. Accomplished, resourceful, scrappy, and wickedly bright, this woman readily identified and proudly owned her chicken as her totem animal for leadership. She inspired me, so much so she made me rethink and ultimately reclaim my association with a rabbit. We used to joke, and still do, about taking chicken and rabbit road trips to create some badass positive change in the world, implied in this Thelma and Louise adventure, minus the unfortunate cliff scene, was a fierce and wildly audacious commitment to making change happen, fueled by nothing more than our intuition, wisdom, and irreverent belief that a chicken and a rabbit could make a difference. I've since come to understand that my on-again, off-again identification with rabbit is a mirror for my identification with a feminine, and here's what I've decided. I'm officially done with running over my rabbit with my own car. I've finally grown weary of the shame, the hiding, the backpedaling, and the hokey-pokey dance I've been doing with a feminine all my life, qualifying and diminishing it with my humor, making it cute, comfortable, or somehow soft, which is all well and good, but when you try to live your life from those beliefs as a woman, it can scare the living shit out of you, having you searching like crazy for a comfortable rock to crawl under, which is exactly what I did for many years. I felt safe in the dark, anonymous. I was simply one person among the masses, passively receiving the words from the storyteller on stage. 
except there wasn't anything passive about me that day. I was a live wire actively seeking an outlet to ground me. She walked on stage and started telling the story about how she had chronically shown up almost but not quite in her life, hiding behind her notes, her earnest desire to get it right, to nail the pitch, rock the interview, dazzle with her presentation, and win the proposal. Listening to her story that day, I felt as if she were speaking directly to me and all the other people in the audience. All the other people in the audience had left the auditorium. This woman, Whitney Johnson, didn't know me then, nor does she know me now. But seeing this highly accomplished financial analyst turn author, do dare do dream and disrupt yourself, speak on stage that day, I started to see myself. I started to see how my love affair with notes and preparation wasn't just my attention to detail or part of my creative process, but was actually me holding on to, desperately at times, a script I thought would keep me safe. Safe from what? Being laughed at, getting it wrong, being found out that I don't have my shit together, not fitting in or feeling like I belong, not being liked, feeling out of control, insecure, vulnerable, anxious, and worthless, powerful in a way that scared the shit out of me. You know, just those things, all those things that are a natural part of the human experience. Listening to Whitney Johnson talk about her decision to put down her scripts so she could show up more fully, not just almost, but all the way in the world was appealing to me. But then again, hearing about someone else's perspective of something can make it all seem deceptively easy. I knew better. When I did triathlons, I had seen a group of more than 200 women swimmers fall prey to the same sort of dynamic, thinking it would be as simple as following the masses. That cold Massachusetts morning in September, as my wave of 35 to 39-year-old women waited for our turn to enter the water, we watched as the strongest swimmer in the previous wave swam out way ahead of the pack and how the rest of the wave of swimmers behind her were naturally following in her wake. From our safe vantage point on shore, we could see how the lead swimmer was heading way off course, taking herself out much wider than the orange buoy course marker required. As a result, all the other swimmers in that particular wave were swimming way more than they needed to, even after realizing they had gone adrift and made a more direct course for that first buoy. There was much confusion, zigzagging, and panic in the water as women figured out what was going on and each assumed responsibility for where she needed to go. Watching from the shore, it seemed so simple. The course looked clearly marked and so evident, so how could so many women swim off course without realizing it? But as a swimmer, I knew what it was like to be in that water with throngs of women around you splashing and fighting for position, racing each other and trying to just get ahead and also not drown. I knew how disorienting it could be out there and how easy it was for panic to set in when you didn't have your bearings. I knew how those bright orange inflatable course markers that seemed to loom so large from shore would all but vanish once I got in the water. I knew that sometimes in the melee of an experience like that, the only script you had was to follow the one the bulk of the people ahead of you seemed to be following. 
I knew that sometimes the best you could hope for in those situations was to thrash around the masses, hoping their way would help you to find your way. Thinking about my experience in those instances showed me there is no script or right way to do something, but only general bearings that might orient you to a course. And yet there were so many fucking scripts governing my life, it seemed. How to be a mother, how to be a good wife, how to be a loving daughter, how to be a successful business owner, how to be a responsible white person, how to be an activist, how to be midlife, Generation X, sexual, spiritual, not religious, Western, extroverted, dyslexic, left-handed, Scorpio, a New Englander, loving, kind, compassionate, of service, powerful, healthy. No wonder I was struggling. These weren't scripts. These were instruction manuals. And where was I in all of those? I didn't know, and to be honest, I was tired of trying. All I knew was that they were heavy and numerous. They also weren't giving me what I was craving. And what was that exactly? Freedom. Freedom to move. Space to roam, wander, even get lost. Freedom to feel my way, figure it out, or even fuck up. Freedom to honor what was true for me and have that inform my actions. Freedom to make it up as I go along and to change my mind as I fold new bits of my experience like fluffy egg whites into the batter of me. Freedom to show up fully in all my color, freak flags waving proudly in the wind. Freedom to relax into who I am, trusting that it's just right like baby bear's bowl of porridge in Goldilocks. Freedom to love myself forever and no matter what, just as I love my husband and my two boys. Clearly, I see them as worthy of that. Now it was my turn. When I took a closer look at all the scripts I'd been lugging around most of my life, there seemed to be one that rose to the top, a meta script that offered an umbrella of understanding under which all the other subscripts were formed. That script was how to be a woman. That was the root of all my scripts. If I wanted to be free, that was the one I needed to haul to the shredder page by dog-eared and coffee-stained page, pages I found under the bed and jammed behind the cushions of the couch, pages tucked into my journals and balled up at the bottom of my purse. I'm still convinced I have not found them all, but the process of searching for them has led me to another question. What would my life look like if I were to live it unscripted? I would live my life by feeling my way, sourcing my movement, informing my choices, and embodying my desires from the truth that lives inside me instead of what I'm being told by others. My snarky side called bullshit on this right away. My mind scrambled to see how that would even be possible, seeking to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that my case was airtight. But my wise side spoke up, assuredly, saying gently but firmly that my life isn't a case to be solved. It's an intention to be lived, one that would undoubtedly take some consciousness, certainly some practice. Which, of course, led me away from the data that lived outside me, the manuals, shoulds, rules, codes of contact, expectations, old stories, and had me head inside myself for my own answers deep inside, where my intuition and feelings swirled among my values and experience, and my 
quiet voice could be heard as distinct from the ambient noises of life. I set out to map my terrain and soon discovered two distinct lands existing inside me. One was familiar and one was more foreign, which I started to see were my masculine and feminine energies in this woman's body body I'm in. That was my first key to understanding the breadth of my range and how I had just been living in a small corral of each, not realizing there was much more big sky country to explore that would take me to the outer reaches of myself. I used to think it was about gender. The masculine and the feminine are about energy, not gender. I had known this intellectually for years, but I was starting to understand, no, to feel how these energies were both alive in me. I was getting in my bones what ancient cultures have believed for many lifetimes. Each of us holds a balance of the universe inside ourselves, a union of the masculine and feminine energies, referred to by many names, yin, yang, light, dark, shakti, shiva. It all points to how we have been designed to be whole. And yet, in trying to learn more about the masculine, I often came across phrases like alpha male, manhood, domination, and ego. For the life of me, I couldn't see myself in anything I researched. Conversely, when I would try to engage women in conversations about the feminine, it would quickly morph into a discussion about men and women, except for rare occasions when the feminine would be qualified in terms of beauty, emotion, or more commonly, cringe, soft skills. How can we become what we cannot fully see in ourselves as women? So I'm setting out to see it in myself, with you as my witness. The first land I will explore, naturally it being my favorite and most familiar, is the masculine. I'll go into specifics of how I define the masculine a bit later, but for now, let me just say that when I explored that territory, I found it to be rather robust. It was strong and often bossy energy, almost a bully in that it loomed so large, making me think it was a ball hog when it came to sharing with a feminine. The feminine energy in me took a bit more time to navigate, as you will soon read, primarily because it felt like uncharted territory with overgrown trails and quicksand pits of resistance. Compared to the masculine energy in me, I found the feminine to be much more diminutive, meek, and slight, like the runt of the litter that circles the food dish during mealtime. It was as if one side of myself, the masculine, was on performance-enhancing drugs, while the other side, the feminine, was malnourished and anemic. I needed to spend more time understanding the feminine, but I didn't want to do it in isolation of the masculine. I wanted to talk about both energies in me. At times, it felt like I was the only one who wanted to engage in this conversation about how these two energies could live inside one body. Men, I knew, were willing to talk about the masculine, but they were, well, men, and as such were not able to speak to a woman's experience of the masculine. And trying to engage women in the masculine or the feminine felt daunting because so often these topics are synonymous with more charged issues of gender, oppression, history, and politics. I am a woman having this deeply personal conversation with myself 
But as I've started to play with the notion of masculine and feminine energies, bouncing some of my ideas off my clients, I rec I'm recognizing that I'm not as alone as I thought. Other women like me are experiencing a hunger for something more, often calling it balance, for lack of a better term. I think we're hungry for the feminine. In reading more about the feminine, it seems inextricably linked to women's power. Marianne Woodman, the pioneering Jungian analyst, said it in an interview with Oprah, the great work of our time is to bring the feminine into this culture. She believes the way to do that is deeply personal and begins with each of us paying attention and attempting to relate to ourselves and to the world around us so that we may, we may come to experience the feminine as presence. The only way to understand the feminine, she says, is to experience it. I've already gotten glimpses of what that's like. I will recount some of these specific stories for you later, but generally they involve slowing down, if not completely stopping. They also tend to occur in nature when I'm unplugged from technology and connected to myself, another, my higher power, and the earth as a whole. They are those moments when I look up at the nighttime sky and see a blanket of stars that remind me of how vast the world is outside me, having me feel awe, vulnerable, and humbled all in the same breath. And as I've been playing more with this idea and seeking to widen the aperture of both the feminine, both for myself and my clients, a beautiful thing has been happening. More flow, grace, ease, and power moves into just about every part of our existence. Our relationships take on more depth and heart. Our bodies feel more strong and free. Our spirits feel more vibrant and pulsating. Our work in the world is more potent and pointed. And something else has been happening too, something almost imperceptible to the eye if you blink quickly. Shame has seeped in as women engage in the conversation about the feminine because it has them come face to face with just how much they have identified with the masculine. Two things seem to be happening in those instances that are especially noteworthy and relevant. The first is that women get self-conscious. It's almost as if by pulling back the curtain, they are exposing themselves as traitors to their own kind. The second is a sense of overwhelm or even mild panic, like being transported to a foreign land without access to a phone, GPS, or any other traditional bearings. Having these, those conversations with women as I was doing this exploration for myself reinforced my desire to have an integrated conversation about how these two energies within a woman's body live within a woman's body and shape her experience. You cannot talk about the feminine without, without also addressing the masculine. Balance. You'll hear me reference that concept a lot in these pages, even though I detest it. I don't appreciate how that phrase seems to automatically trigger a discussion about work-life balance, suggesting we must somehow choose one at the cost of another. It's a topic that undeniably surfaces among women, balance, something we're constantly in search of but never seem to attain, like a cat chasing a red laser dot on a hardwood floor. The balance I am seeking has less to do with my life circumstances and competing demands 
and more to do with the internal energy I am using to live my life. I want to use both of these energies in me, the masculine and the feminine, with more balance. Even more, as you'll see me explore later, I want to spend some time with the outer reaches of these energies within me to better understand how to live more expansively. The conversation must include both energies as two parts of the whole. Part of what I'm seeking is to piece together my own stories, to name the masculine as well as the feminine, so I can invite them to work in concert with each other. I'm going to approach this entire conversation with myself not as a means to exclude the masculine, but to engage it as part of the whole. So that's chapter two of my book, entitled Unscripted. And here's a bit of a riff on that. I want to start with this whole thing around hunger and shame and echo and underline and highlight for you as you're listening that this is, this from my vantage point, this hunger is getting louder and louder. Just this week, I have had so many of my clients say, I want more f- I want to understand the feminine. I want to bring the feminine more into my life. And they're starting to name it as such. And they're asking, how does that look? How do I do that? How do I get it? And as they're doing that, they're also engaging and noticing and naming that there's, um, there's shame there. There's regret there. There's this um, conversation of, how did I get to be a woman in my 40s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and not make space for the feminine in my life? So there's this acknowledgement of um, being culpable in the feminine sort of getting buried. And a lot of women um, use the word, I want to unearth the feminine. Clarissa Pinkoli Estes in her book, Women Who Run With the Wolves, um, talks about... Um, digging down to the bones. She said um, her invitation is let us sing the flesh back onto the bones. And she talks about stories being a great place, stories being bones. And to f- once we find the bones of the feminine, in this case, the wild woman archetype she talks about, we can sing the flesh back onto the bones. So if you're listening to this and you're you're new to the feminine or you're wondering what the feminine is, I want to underline for you that you're so not alone. This is a conversation that is being had by many and not just women. A lot of men are also leaning in and having this conversation as well. So I wanted to touch on on that. Um, and I also wanted to touch on this idea that the only way to understand the feminine is to experience it. The quote by Marianne Woodman that I referenced in that last chapter. Um, and um, I referenced some of the things that do it for, for me. Certainly being, as I'm recording this, it's summertime in Maine, so that the days are longer um, and it beckons us outside more and into these, um, the sultry nights. The, the, there's a full moon tonight as I'm recording this. And so being out in nature, being by the ocean, being on in the mountains, being in the woods, being in the gardens with dirt and loam um, oozing between your toes, 
That's where the feminine lives. It does not live in a book. I know I wrote about it, but put my book down and go outside and stick your toes in some dirt. That's where the feminine is. Look up at the skies. Look up at the leaves. Um, the feminine lives in uh, through our senses. Our senses will lead us back to the feminine. So um, when I drive up with my husband to northern Maine, he grew up on a potato farm, and when we drive up in the fall in particular, um, I'll put down the windows and I'll, I'll hang my nose out the car like a dog does and I'll smell the smell of mud and dirt. It happens in the spring for me when the thaw happens and, and it happens in the fall for me when the harvest of the potatoes happens. But the smell of dirt does it for me, as does the smell of salt water. Um, that does it for me. And um, most recently, I've been craving and experiencing um, essential oils and, and noticing how they awaken various parts of me. Those are the doorways to my feminine. It's the taste of a tomato in a red ripe tomato in the heart of August. It's the taste of a strawberry in July. It's the color of the sky in the winter when the stark darkness of the trees lights up against those that Maxfield Parish blue skies. It's in the emotions. It's in the silence. Um, it's, in, um, it's, it's in those magical places, the space between the, no the notes of our lives. Um, and it's in play. The other place that I'd have you look for the feminine, children are wonderful teachers, and frankly, excuses to get out and play and to laugh and to um, get silly and to connect. Play, for me, is the thing that I resist the most, and it is, it is um, pay dirt for me when it comes to accessing the feminine, because for me, in play is where I find magic. In magic is where I remember the feminine. So, the thing that I'd have you sit with is this idea that I read from my last chapter of feeling like the feminine was feeling like an unwelcome host, or I, I was a, an, uh, a host that was not being very gracious to the feminine. The feminine was an unwelcome visitor to my home. And so um, I'd ask you of, of where are you making space for the feminine in your life? And where do you find you're crowding it out? And what would it look like if you were to make space today, this week, this month, on that vacation that you have coming up, on that, um, that moment, that found time that slides into you that could be filled with busy but could be kept open? What would it look like if you made more space for the feminine to move in? Because it will not come in without your permission, which means that it needs you to make some space for it if, to move into. So what would that look like?